Hello, Strange Stories UK here again, episode 19. Since starting uh, Strange Story UK podcast last October, I've been happy with my download rates, with some shows now approaching 800 downloads. I knew I was late to the party. I was listening to iPods when I got my first MP3 player back in 2005. Now, with so many podcasts that are available, each time I listen or do a search, I always find others that I want to listen to. So many podcasts, so little time. I suppose it's a bit like punk rock back in the 70s when everybody was persuaded to start a band. Now everybody is doing a podcast. I know my podcast could be greatly improved, especially with the editing, but I enjoy making them. I like the researching and the writing. That's the fun part. Editing and presenting the podcast are the aspects I don't really enjoy. The most popular podcasts have proved to be the more recent true crime. The less favoured have been the historical cases. The least popular was the uh, podcast on Piltdown Man. So I don't have high hopes for today's podcast, which is the Loch Ness Mystery. But as a subject, Loch Ness used to fascinate me as a child, and I just want to do a podcast on that subject. If you have any comments, please do so on Strange Stories UK on Facebook, also Strange Stories UK on Instagram, and um, Strange Stories UK on Twitter. I'd like to say that this has been the most enjoyable podcast to research, as there's so many interesting characters and small stories involved in this Loch Ness story. I do not want to dwell on the history of sightings at Loch Ness or attempt a chronological history, as I think along with 99% of the population that have thought about the Loch Ness mystery, I don't believe that any dinosaur or marine reptile exists or has ever existed during human habitation. I certainly don't believe in any cryptozoological creature exists, although on saying that, strange phenomena has happened and I hope to have some conclusions by the end of this podcast. I would like to consider some interesting stories about the lock and to examine some possible reasons why there are such a cross-section of lucid and seemingly genuine sightings. It is, for example, difficult to comprehend witnesses such as John Cameron. For many years he was the head lockkeeper at Fort Augustus, where the lock ends, and the canal to Loch Oish begins. Cameron has spent 40 years working or fishing at Loch Ness and has never seen anything unusual. He experienced all the curious effects of the sun, wind, light, shade and the turbulent waters on the loch. However, in the late 1960s, this down-to-earth, no-nonsense Scott saw something he could not describe. A huge back breaking the water 35 metres away from him. There are other witnesses that would seem to be on reproach that make it difficult to dismiss all the claims of a large, unexplained creature. There's some videos on YouTube that look very convincing, and uh, I couldn't uh, explain them away. Well, first of all, it's important to consider the lock itself. 300 million years ago, the movement in tectonic plates split Scotland at the line of the Great Glen, and this is what created Loch Ness. 
during the Ice Age, 4,000 feet in depth of ice dug into the, the fissure of the Great Glen. And 10,000 years ago, retreating glaciers dug a deep gouges in the area. <clears throat> it is worth remembering that dinosaurs and large marine reptiles died out 65 million years ago. Uh, we're just going back 10,000 years ago for the creation of uh, Loch Ness itself. The loch has steep sides and a flat bottom with a thick layer of sediment. It's not the deepest or the widest loch, but when all the details are considered, it's quite easily the greatest loch with a, a mean depth of 433 feet. Its depth can increase to deep holes approaching 1,000 feet. The loch is deeper than the sea surrounding Scotland. Its depth is greater until the dip of the continental shelf beyond the archipelago of St Kilda. So the loch's about 23 miles long, an average of a mile wide. There are tunnels and caves and overhangs in the rocks under the water. And it has a unique topography. It's shaped like a long wind tunnel. And because of its great depth, the water temperature doesn't change that much. In the summer, there are the effects of warm air on cold water. In the winter, there are the effects of cold water on warm water. Sorry, cold air on warm water. These conditions can cause strange effects, especially when you can factor in wave patterns bouncing off the steep banks of the loch, causing underwater waves, which cause tree logs and other debris to be carried against the wind and to be mistaken for huge creatures. Strange conditions and unexplained events have led to much exaggeration and many false and misleading claims over events at the lock. However, many of these are interesting stories in themselves. It would be Frank Searle. He first came to the lock after leaving his greengrocer job in London in June 1969. He had his first sighting of uh, a monster at Loch Ness when he was on holiday there in 1965 and the subject had always interested him. The 48-year-old Sir lived in a tent at Lockside for the first three years near Dawes with only cats for company. He was tough, fit, ex-military and he survived on a small army pension. He moved to the field behind Bolskin House then moved to the lockside at Lower Foyers, living in a caravan with a succession of young female volunteers. Sill could be explained as a character that was a, a gamekeeper turned poacher. He was certainly tireless in his reporting of strange happenings and straightforward observations of the lock. Initially, he was sincere in his quest to uncover the mystery of Loch Ness and spent, well, according to him, an estimated 20,000 hours observing the lock. At some point around 1972, perhaps frustrated by the lack of results, Searle chanced upon a large log floating in the lock which happened to resemble a dinosaur-type creature. Searle photographed the log on the 27th of July 1972 and it was taken near Foyers. The Daily Mail published it on September the 1st, and the photograph became famous. It achieved global syndication. 
Searle's name became known around the world, and he was popularised the story of the monster, <clears throat> causing the media to consider what was living in the depths of the lock. The photograph looks like a tree trunk and a root, which could be viewed as a small aquatic sauropod-type creature if some imagination is used. Searle became a Loch Ness celebrity and was sought out by visitors to the lock, who were persuaded to part with money for postcards, booklets, audio tapes and donations to help him continue the search. Searle erected a hand-painted sign announcing the Frank Searle Loch Ness Investigation on a notice on a bleak stretch of waste ground by the Loch Shore at Foyers. Home was a blue caravan and an exhibition centre which was built out of scavenged wood and corrugated plastic roofing that barely withstood the uh, Loch Ness weather. Searle's exhibition was mainly newspaper clippings about him and copies of photographs and autographed pictures of famous people wishing him well, such as Neil Armstrong saying, I saw the surface of the moon, but I really envy the things Frank has seen. And Tom Baker, Doctor Who, who filmed a Doctor Who story up there. And lots of the Doctor Who episodes were filmed around Loch Ness. Some of these autographed photographs were thought to have been faked. Sewell was the to-go-to man for the media, as he was the only investigator on the lock that was always available for a quote, and he became the quasi-spokesman for the Loch Ness monster searching community in the early 1970s, and became a well-known, a well-known character. Twenty first, nineteen seventy two, and February the twenty sixth, nineteen seventy six. Searle took many photographs of what he alleged were the Loch Ness monsters. He produced a book, Nessie: Seven Years in Search of the Monster. It was published in nineteen seventy six. The book was later withdrew after plagiarism claims. There was a magnetism about Searle with his tall, rakish good looks but he's also a very controlling character. He advertised in the Glasgow Herald small ads for Girl Fridays, and this attracted women to share the winters with him. One of these women later saying, there was no romantic involvement, not for him, not for me, but there was a physical involvement. It sounds harsh perhaps, but that was the 70s. People experimented. A Belgium student called Liev Petten, joined him as his assistant monster huntress for two years from 1977. Her organisational skills and ability with languages greatly helped Searle in his quest for publicity. Searle seemed quite happy in the 1970s with a regular supply of young women to keep him company, clear water to bathe in, fresh salmon for supper and a growing reputation as a Nessie expert. It was a nice life beside the lock, and Searle continued to live there in his blue and white caravan, even in the winter, when most hunters went home, and temperatures sometimes fell to minus 17 degrees. <clears throat> the Belgium student later wrote, Living there in the caravan, without running water, without electricity, or proper heating, was quite a revelation for a sport westerner like me. Liev never saw any sign of the monster, 
she was basically Searle's personal assistant. She showed him how to produce a regular quarterly newsletter, which gave Searle a means to criticise anybody who found fault with his fake photographs. As the 1970s progressed, there were other, far more reliable investigations setting up. Searle was feeling threatened. The experts had finally begun to look at his photographs. Searle captured more Nessie pictures than anybody else, claiming that his sniper training in the army gave him an ability to snatch pictures. But investigations showed these as fakes, which in turn caused Searle to pass misleading information to visitors that came to see his exhibition at the lock. Searle was a one-man show. Everything was very amateur. However, things would change greatly within a few years at the Loch Ness. The Loch Ness monster would transform into big business, bringing millions to the local economy. Frank Searle got away with his act for years because the papers that bought his shots, his photographs, did not particularly care that they were fakes. The photographs sold newspapers. They got people talking. And also because nobody seemed especially keen to challenge him. He could be intimidating and displayed aggressive behaviour which extended to issuing death threats. Well, these were probably just threats to people that crossed him. Tony Harmsworth, he helped set up the official Loch Ness Monster Exhibition at uh, Dromnedot and took much of Searle's custom. He told the Glasgow Herald that he had once found a note stuck to his car windscreen in Inverness. It said something like, Your time is running out. Other people had been threatened by Searle when criticising his methods in photography. Searle realised that he did have something worth protecting, especially when considering the present Loch Ness Centre and exhibition site. And reflect on the fact that Frank Searle had been the first had the first visit the centre if he didn't include the Loch Ness Phenomenon Investigation Bureau, the LNPIB. Just a quick word about the Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau. It was a society set up by some influential naturalists and ran from 1962 to 1972. It had an annual subscription charge and over a thousand members. Its main objective was to get people to spend the holiday time coming to Loch Ness to look out for any proof of the monster in the lock. People would pay to spend their time under ex-army canvas tents or in caravans, taking turns to watch from vantage points, cook dinners. I feel quite sure that I would have joined them and taken part if I was old enough to do so. It sounds a great way to spend a week or two with like-minded people who enjoy the outdoor life and nature. The LNIPB was like a well-run scout camp. It collected about a thousand eyewitness accounts, but many of these were faked. There was a character called Mr Muir, who for his own amusement would point out disturbances on the lock to tourists and encourage them to report them to the uh, Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau. Considering the ten years it spent watching the lock, it didn't come up with any sightings that didn't have a scientific explanation. Adrian Shine is a familiar figure to anybody interested in Loch Ness. He's a wise head, something of a Gandalf-type figure. 
He was the leader of the Loch Ness and Mora project, the LNMP, which was <clears throat> set up to make a survey of the environment, of the plant life in Loch Mora. Loch Mora was a loch close to Loch Ness, but its water was much clearer and it was easier to investigate. And it had its own uh, monsters, if you like, in there. They had water horses in there. Also, Loch Mora was easier to practice sonar scanning in the loch's clear waters and to watch the TV screens of images from cameras in the depths of the loch in an attempt to ascertain whether the loch could support enough food for a large water horse or beast or monster that was said to live in it. Students of biology from the Royal Holloway College would arrive to run experiments on the waters and plants in the area. Adrian Shine then went on to concentrate on the wildlife and environment of Loch Ness. The LNMP was a much more scientific-based organisation and one which one by one, dismissed the sources of evidence for a monster that other investigations had come up with. The LNMP had an evidence committee. It was headed by Ricky Gardner, who set about first detailed examination of Searle's photographs, checking images, comparing backgrounds to locate the site of the shots, and he soon came up with firm evidence of hoaxing. For example... Gardner saw in an Inverness newsagent shop a picture postcard of a brontosaurus. Examination of this image revealed startling similarities to several of Searle's photos. It appears, it appears that Searle had purchased copies, cut out portions of the dinosaur's body and glued them to photos of the lock's surface and then retook photos, claiming that they were photos that he'd taken of the monster. A dossier produced on Searle's work convinced many that his monsters were really constructed from fence posts, uh, stocks, tarpaulins, and as mentioned, the cutting and pasting of a dinosaur postcard onto an image of disturbed water. There was one example of Searle's attempt uh, to sell a photograph of Nessie and a UFO in the same, in the same photograph. All the while, Searle vehemently defended his photographs against claims of fraud, and numerous tales of his sometimes violent altercations with journalists, television crews and rival hunters have entered Loch Ness folklore. None of this mattered much while Gardner's report remained an internal project document. However, in the summer of 1983, Shine got to hear that Searle was planning a book, a follow-up to his 1977 paperback, Nessie, Seven Years in Search of the Monster. The new book was to be a vehicle for Searle to expose the rackets that other Loch Ness monster researchers had supposedly run over the years. Searle seemed to think that Shine, involved at the loch since 1973, was trying to muscle in on his Loch Ness project. It seems that Searle was desperately trying to discredit the other organisations that were now investigating his body of work, which of course had been faked. Shine decided to put a stop to the Searle book, and as he was going to be libelled in the book, and Searle's frauds also threatened the credibility of Shine's own work. Shine con contacted Searle's publisher with evidence that Searle had fake photographs, and the publisher decided not to publish the book. Searle's mind was now fixed on the notion that Shine and the LNMP was his enemy. They'd cost him money. 
A few days later, the words Shine, Conman appeared painted on the walls of Urquhart Castle in letters several feet high. There was little doubt in the minds of the Loch Ness Project members who was behind the graffiti. During August 1983, the LNMP ran its operation from Strone, a house on the hill above Urquhart Castle, where Shine lived. Off-duty project members camped in several army surplus tents nearby. Three miles southwest, there was the shore station, a small tent and a mooring for the LNMP's large inflatable, sat by the water's edge. The boat provided a means of transport to a fixed platform, anchored in the middle of the lock, in 700 feet of water. The platform housed an active sonar, and the aim of that year's project was to see if it was possible to duplicate the results of 1982 when mobile sonar patrols had picked up several large and apparently moving targets below the surface. By anchoring the platform, Shane aimed to discover if these targets were no more than false readings produced by rogue sound waves bouncing off the narrow underwater walls of the lock. It turned out that they were. There were about 24 volunteers working with the LNMP that week. They were divided into three watches each working 12-hour shifts. Fresh crews were ferried up and down the road to the shore station by a scheduled service by a minibus lent by the Royal Holloway College. The only other methods of travel were hitchhiking or walking. On the 23rd of August, 1983, at about 5.30am, a small boat appeared just offshore and a Molotov cocktail filled with petrol was hurled at the project's inflatable on the lockside. At that time, four people were on the platform on the lock. The others were asleep in the tent on the shoreside. They were woken by the sound of a boat motor and found the water near the inflatable on fire. They managed to save the inflatable from the fire. There was no way to contact the police or the rest of the project team, but it was obvious to them who the suspect was. The police were eventually informed at Inverness and a squad car arrived at Searle's caravan at about 7.30am. They found him painting his caravan. Although Searle was ID'd by the volunteers, there was not enough evidence to charge him. A few days later he disappeared. The caravan that he had lived in for so long was kicked into the water. An actor playing the character of Searle resurfaced in the 1996 film Loch Ness. Searle was played by Keith Allen, and was depicted as a mad fanatic who thought he owned the monster. Searle had left the lock and was never seen or heard of again at the lock. He simply vanished. It was later discovered that he had moved to Fleetwood, Fleetwood in Lancashire and he, where he passed away during March 2005. Another theory about the creation, the, the, the creature in the lock is that it's a paranormal creation in 2009, a plot of land, almost two acre, two acres in size, at Boldskin Bay. This plot of land included 140 feet of shoreline at Loch Ness, and it was placed on the market for £176,000. This was part of the estate at Boldskin House. The land sought permission to build a three-bedroom property. It was being sold by the Dutch owner, 
who was in effect asset stripping the property, which played a part in the Loch Ness story. Bolskin House was built as a hunting lodge on the southern shores of Loch Ness in the 1760s. It was said to have been built on the site of a Scottish church that had burnt down during a service and had killed everybody inside. This is according to legend. Other strange stories attached to the house, uh, such as the attempt, uh, the graveyard of the church that burnt down, their attempts to bring corpses back to life on the grounds during the 17th century in Frankenstein-like experiments. The house was purchased by Alistair Crowley in 1899 in order to carry out some magic experiments. One of his intentions was to invoke a guardian angel which required six months of celibacy and abstinence from alcohol. The magic also included the summoning of twelve kings and dukes of hell to bind them and remove their negative influences from the magician's life. Apparently, in this sort of spell, it's important not to call up spirits and then not banish them afterwards. Crowley did not follow this practice and he was called away to Paris from for some important Golden Dawn business. He did not banish the spirits that he'd invoked, and this led to all sorts of strange happenings occurring in and around Bolskin House. Crowley and his followers claimed that the Loch Ness Monster was created during this time, the monster being a supernatural monster raised by Crowley. The beast started to be seen on a regular occurrence after Crowley's time at the house, Crowley leaving the property in 1913. I suppose it could be asked if Crowley claimed credit for starting the Great War, but on research, on researching this question, he only seems to have predicted it. Certainly, Bolskin seems to be jinxed after the Crowley's time there. Colin Wilson, the well-known paranormal author, saying that many weird things took place at Bolskin during and after Crowley's 12-year tenure. Several personal tragedies are associated with the house. One employee of the estate attempted to kill his wife and children. It was claimed in Crowley's diary that his lodgekeeper, uh, <clears throat> Hugh Gilly, lost his two children in sudden, unexplained circumstances. A housemaid is said to have gone mad and a local butcher cut off his hand while dealing with Crowley's order. In 1965, the new owner of the property, a Major Edward Grant, killed himself with a shotgun in the bedroom that had been used by Crowley for many of his satanic rituals. There is a bizarre video on YouTube recounting this tale, the housekeeper laughingly telling how Piggywig, a little dog, was given some of the general's skull bone to chew on after the suicide, but that it was fortunately retrieved and buried with the general. Avant-garde filmmaker Kenneth Anger rented the house for a few months in the late 1960s. He was there because Crowley had used to live there. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin fame and with an interest in the occult bought the house and strange events are recorded by those staying there, rarely Page himself. Page having amassed a huge amount of Alistair Crowley memorabilia at the house. Page fell out with Robert Plant, the singer, when the Led Zeppelin uh, singer over his occult dabbling. Plant blame, blamed Page for a car crash that he'd suffered. 
because they've been dabbling in the occult. Jimmy Page never spent a great amount of time there, and everything he he did everything he could do to return the house to how it would have been looked during Crowley's ownership. For example, he commissioned an artist, Charles Pace, to paint some Crowley-esque murals on the wall. These were based on murals in Crowley's Abbey of Thalema in Sicily, discovered by Kenneth Anger in 1955. The house burnt down in December 2015, and only the outer walls remain now. There's some videos on YouTube showing the ruined interior with furniture and books and the like still in position. Bolskin House is mentioned as Frank Searle lived in the grounds for some months and it may have been the place that the monster was created in the paranormal experiment by Alistair Crowley. But I don't think that we believe that, so we'll go back to the Loch Ness mystery. There have been lots of practical jokes regarding the creature, there's been creatures placed in the lock. And there's the case in 1968 when a dead bottlenose dolphin was put in the lock by some fishermen. When the six-foot-long decayed corpse washed up on the shore, it caused speculation. A dead seal was placed in the lock as an April Fool's prank in 1972. A large body was discovered floating in the water. The corpse, over five metres long and weighing as much as one and a half tonnes, was described as having a bear's head and a brown scaly body with claw-like fins. The creature was placed in a van to be carried away for testing, but the police seized it under an Act of Parliament prohibiting the removal of any unidentified creatures from Loch Ness. It was later revealed that a Flamingo Park education officer, John Shields, shaved the whiskers and otherwise disfigured the bull seal which had died the week before and dumped it at Loch Ness to dupe his colleagues. Perhaps the best or the most famous hoax was the well-known photograph taken in 1934 on April 1st. This was known as the surgeon's photograph. 1933 had seen the construction of the A. 82 Road along the north shore of the lock and this caused a huge spike in the number of sightings of something large seen in the lock. Those that believed in the monster said that the creature was disturbed by the road building and was thus seen more often. Others point to the fact that the north shore was now easily accessible to those with mass-produced cameras who wanted and were able to send photographs to a mass media eager for news. In 1994 the Sunday Telegraph exposed the surgeon's photograph of April 1934 as a joke that got out of hand. Marmaduke Arundel Duke Weatherall was a, safe, a self-styled huge show-off. He had been hired by the Daily Mail to produce evidence of a creature. Within 48 hours of him arriving at the lock, he'd found footprints in soft mud. Had these been planted there or were they made by him? No one can be sure. The footprints were near Fort Augustus and they turned out to be made by a hippopotamus umbrella stand. Whether all was sacked by the Daily Mail but was determined to get his own back on the Daily Mail by producing proof of a monster. Weatherall turned hoaxer and converted a toy submarine toy by planting a plastic wood over the conning tower and shaped it into a dinosaur looking neck and head. He then got a Robert Wilson a practical joking surgeon to claim that he took the photograph. 
as it was thought that a surgeon could not possibly stoop to practical joking. Indeed, Wilson was warned that any association with the story could damage his professional standing when rumours started about his involvement. So this is perhaps why the secret was kept for 60 years. But it does remain the, the most famous photograph of the, of the monster. Another outrageous hoax appeared was the, the Fliffer photograph taken in 1972. This was popularised by Robert Rines in the Academy of Applied Science from Boston. Underwater sonar photographs had been taken by time-lapse flashed cameras. Pictures were taken of debris at the bottom of the lake and then touched up by an unknown artist to look like a flipper. Other photographs were said to be the creature taken at a distance. These photographs were headline news around the world and were included in Nature magazine. Rains claims to be a serious scientist and spent much time and money researching the lock. It's not known how involved he was in the doctor photographs. Perhaps he was an, in, an innocent victim, but one who didn't ask enough questions. Ryan's investigations in the depths of the lock did lead to at least one unchallenged discovery. That was the remains of an RAF Wellington bomber lost during World War II in 70 metres of water. It was recovered in 1985. On the 2nd of July 2003, Mr Gerald McSorley came to Loch Ness and reported finding some bones on the shore of Loch Ness when he tripped on them in the loch, on the loch shore. This was below the most northerly lay-by on the A82 road. The material was examined by Adrian Shine and found to consist of four fossil vertebrae embedded in limestone material not found at the lock. It was felt most likely that the fossil had been exposed in a marine environment and had been placed at the shore near the lay-by in order to be found. The vertebrae was from a, uh, a plesiosaur and was said to be about 150 million years old. I think my favourite folks photograph uh, was taken in 1933. It's known as the spray photo. And when looked at closely, you can see a Labrador dog swimming towards the photographer with a stick in his mouth, rather than a monster disappearing into the lock. Well, there seems to be a lot of fake evidence and sightings. However, authoritative naturalists claim that there was something in the lock. Gerald Durrell, David Attenborough, Peter Scott, Richard Fitter... Robert Rhines were all convinced of some unknown creature. Locals say there's many a queer thing in that lock, so what could account for these sightings? Seals, or given their scientific name of pinnipeds, normally live in salt water and are normally dismissed as a candidate for any monster sightings. Some books on, Loch Ness, on the Loch Ness mystery suggest that elephant seals or manatee also known as sea cows, could be, could be the monster. But that would be highly unlikely given that Scotland is not their habitat. However, grey seals and harbour seals are common around Scotland's shores. Grey seals can reach over 3 metres in length. Harbour seals 2 metres in length. Their colour and skins match those descriptions of unknown creatures in the past. Seals aren't that uncommon in the loch. The very first organised monster hunt in 1934, called the Edward Mountain Expedition, was about 20 men with binoculars 
and cameras positioned around the lock from 9am to 6pm for five weeks. The only thing that they discovered was a, was a grey seal. These men knew what they were looking for. So imagine a person who doesn't know too much about natural history seeing the hump of a seal rise from some, rise from some metres away before diving down again. This would be likely to be taken as a sighting. And if that person is of good character, then it will be believed by some, not least the viewer, who is now a confirmed believer that there is something strange in the lock, and so the reputation spreads. There's a charming video on YouTube about someone called Steve Fulton, who in his 20s sold his house near Bournemouth during the early 1990s to follow his dream living at Loch Ness. To his credit, Steve said that in the first year at Loch Ness, he saw something that could have been a creature, but since that time, he's never had another possible sighting. Compared to the young Steve in the video diary, that the programme was called The Video Diaries, to Steve today, in other videos on YouTube, he is now a grey and grizzled figure, but enjoying his life at the Loch and making a living selling models of Nessie sitting on a rock holding a marble. In the video diary during his first year at the lock, there's a seal captured on the film, suggesting that they are relatively common visitors to the lock. Recently, we've had another contender for the best ever photograph of Nessie. Ian Bremner, a whiskey warehouse worker, was out photographing uh, red deer in the highlands around the lock, and he took a photograph of humps in the head of a long serpentine monster which turned out to be three seals swimming in a line. Ian said to the Scotsman newspaper, I suppose it could be seals, but I'm not so sure. The more I think about it, the more I think it could be Nessie. However, speaking about the lock, Ian admitted, if you're fishing there, it's the sort of place where you can get a tingle up your spine and second guess what you've, what you've seen. You start seeing things even when you know there's nothing there. I feel quite sure that some of the sightings of Nessie in the past are seals. Creatures are that are in an unexpected place and unfamiliar to some people. Creatures that can be 10 feet long, glanced in port light, in, glanced in poor light, diving into the depths. Other creatures cited as candidates for a, the, for a monster sighting would include families of otters, swimming stags, um, another theory put forward was swimming circus elephants, relaxing between shows during the 1930s, causing some sightings. The illustrations of the elephant theory are quite persuasive, and from a distance they could be seen as a monster. During the 19th century, ponies swimming across the lock and deer swimming across the lock were confused with monster, monster sightings. Another candidate would be sawbill ducks, such as magansas and gusander ducks, which breed on the lock. It must sound strange suggesting that ducks could be confused with a monster, but at a distance, when the group are swimming, causing a, a narrow V-wake, it can look like something large swimming under the surface. When they take off in flight, they can cause an optical illusion. The birds causing a disturbance on the water, paddling the water with their feet as they take off, but being lost to view when they have taken off against the background darkness of the opposite bank.
Often when swimming in a group, they can appear much larger and create an optical illusion as a black hump if viewed at above from long range. When the group then breaks up, unless the water is calm, it can appear as if the hump is submerged. Some famous sightings have later been explained as a family of ducks taking off, such as the Rainer film from 1967. Rainer took a film of what he thought was an unidentified creature, and then 20 years later took the same film and realised it was a family of ducks that gave the appearance of the Loch Ness Monster. Rainer went and worked for the LMPIB, the Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau. In 2007, a massive salmon caught in the River Ness was thought to be the biggest caught in the UK. It wasn't entered in the records books because its weight wasn't verified. Those catching it wanted to put the creature back alive and would have to kill the salmon to verify its weight. Witnesses to the catch said that the huge salmon caught in the River Ness, near Inverness, was 56 inches long, 50 inches around the girth, and it was thought to be at about £100 in weight. The record salmon caught in Scotland is still held by Georgina Ballantyne, who made headlines when she caught a salmon weighing £64 pounds in 1922 in the River Tay in Perthshire. Salmon had been recorded as growing two metres in length, and it is possible that a huge salmon was responsible for some sightings of the monster. The largest trout caught in the lock was 18 pounds, so unlikely to be confused with the monster. Could people have mistaken a huge eel as the monster? The biggest eel ever caught was a conger eel trapped by accident in the nets off of Iceland. This creature weighed 350 pounds. However, conger eels are sea creatures. Gary Campbell, recorder and keeper of the official Loch Ness Monster Sighting Register, said, the eel, the eel theory is the most common and one of the most plausible explanations of the Loch Ness Monster. Loch Ness is teeming with eels. They eat the flesh of any dead creature in the loch. In 1995, a fisherman claimed while fishing on his 16-foot boat with an outboard motor that an eel passed on the surface of the water longer than his boat. 16-foot-plus eels have been recorded in the lock in the past. In 2008, an 18-foot eel was found blocking pipe outlets at the lock. There have been unconfirmed reports of eels with manes in the lock, and divers have reported eels thicker than a man's leg. It's thought that eels in the lock grow to about 5 feet, 1.5 metres. There have been reports of 7 to 9 feet, up to 3 metres, taken in Loch Ness, but these dimensions seem to be unusual. Many people favour the huge eel theory as a cause of many sightings. Eels live in freshwater, but when they mature sexually, they will seek seat water, compelled to migrate to the Sargasso Sea. Some eels do not mature sexually and do not have the compulsion to leave the loch. They just grow and grow. Eels are thought of living are capable of live, living to excess of 150 years. So imagine how big an eel could grow to in 150 years, living in the right conditions. Could Loch Ness monster be a huge pike? Pikes can live to over 50 years of age and could possibly grow to 100 pounds. 
although the biggest rod caught pike in the UK is £70. An unlikely candidate for a monster, although terrifying for young children or a dog paddling in the shallows. The largest pike caught in Loch Ness is recorded at £55 back in the 1930s. Perhaps a more likely candidate for a monster could be a giant catfish. I often visit Elby in the south of France. The River Tarn runs through the city, and if you go to the old bridge during the summer months, when there's been no rain for a while, large dark shapes can be seen near the gravel banks. Occasionally one of these shapes will lunge from the water and take a pigeon drinking by the, from the side of the lock. Catfish can grow to over 15 feet long. They're huge creatures and could easily pass for a monster if breaking the surface at a distance. Giant catfish could live in the lock. They're long-lived fish and they've got no natural predators in the UK. Another candidate would be the sturgeon. In the early 1930s, Marion MacDonald from Inverness saw something that looked like a crocodile with tusks swimming up the River Ness. That's one way a surgeon could be described by someone who's never seen one before. The back does appear to be very reptilian in nature. When shown a picture of a sturgeon, Marion confirmed that that's what she'd seen. The largest surgeon on record weighed 1,571 kilograms, almost three and a half thousand pounds, and was 7.2 meters long, 24 feet. That was back in the 19th century, but they're long-lived fish and can live to over 100 years old. Sturgeon have been caught in a Loch Ness in the past, in salmon nets, and Adrian Shine, who must be the world expert on Loch Ness, said that a Baltic sturgeon is the best candidate for the monster. Sturgeon are becoming more common in British lakes, and near to where I live in Sussex there's a lake with a large sturgeon that's regularly caught as he will eat everything in the lake and he gets caught almost every year and gets larger each year. Huge monkfish have been sighted in the loch and in the right conditions could be confused with a monster sighting. Shine was called to a boat that collided with the monster but was later identified as probably a monkfish. In 2009, Apple Maps, Apple Maps or Apple Google Maps have also captured a shadowy shape near the lake surface, which was featured in the media. This resembles a huge monkfish, which can grow up to eight feet in length. Overall, if the monster is a huge fish, the best candidate would be a sturgeon, then an eel, then a catfish, in my opinion. Certainly, I think that these have been the cause of sightings in the past. As a result of the low ambient temperatures of Loch Ness, we'll rule out cold-blooded reptiles as the identity of the monster. Warm-blooded reptiles, if they existed at all, would have needed a surface as regularly as mammals, uh, and this would, uh, their identity would have been solved a long time ago. Other candidates for monster sightings could include stags swimming across the loch, mass hatchings of insects, vegetation maps breaking away from the bottom, rising to the surface, earth tremors releasing gas, fermenting Scots pine logs rising to the surface of the loch, as argued by the New Scientist magazine in 1982, 
I think the floating log theory could uh, account for many sightings on the lock. Over the years, there have been perhaps over 10,000 reports of sightings at the lock, at Loch Ness. About 3,000 of these have been in written form. When these have been investigated further, about 250 of these can be considered as valid sightings once all the waves, the logs and birds are discounted. When people visit the lock, it's natural they are looking for something unusual. Suggestive thoughts can create false sightings, with people seeing what they've set out to see. As already explained, the lock has unusual topography. Weather patterns and strange optical illusions can be created. There are unusual wave patterns on the lock. A white cap wave will have a darker area underneath. Imagine out of the corner of your eye seeing a white cap wave break. Your eyes will turn around, having registered a dark shape underneath. Now only ripples exist at that spot. The lock's located on a major fault line, and roadways created by seismic activity are also not uncommon. One of the most common sightings on the lock are the optical illusions created by the wake of boats created by what appeared to be a line of solid-looking humps. Boat waves can leave standing waves long after the boat has passed by. It's said that flat and calm conditions are the perfect Nessie spotting conditions, as this is also the conditions required for boat wakes to be much more prominent. This phenomenon is produced in long, narrow waterways such as the lock as the waves bounce off the shores in calm weather and advance towards each other as other wakes cause even more humps and other false sightings. Most years the media will report on sightings of waves being mistaken for Nessie. Other causes of false sightings are passing seagulls, birds and insects being caught on film over or underexposed. Or they all give the illusions of something mysterious. Loch Ness attracts an estimated million tourists each year, bringing in £25 million to the local economy. So the continuation of monster rumours is very good for business. And if it is possible to prove a negative, to prove that something doesn't exist, it would upset those who prosper from the tourist visits. We don't have to identify the Loch Ness Monster as a single species, as the evidence can be explained without suggesting an unknown species. The sightings and evidence, such as photos and film, obviously have a, a wide range of explanations. The Loch Ness Monster is a bit like UFOology, a mystery that some people will want to believe, and so it will be continued. Attempts to prove conclusively that there could be unidentified creatures always seems to be problematic. In 1987, there was Operation Deep Scan, a sonar sweep of the lock by 24 boats fitted with the latest sonar equipment to search the lock. They spent three days searching, covering about 60% of the surface areas that were suitable for a, a sonar search. On the first day, a positive reading was made for three readings, larger than a shark but smaller than a whale deep down in the lock, depths of between three and six hundred feet, swimming at speed. Later, Adrian Shine, who organised the search, said they could have been seals. I'm thinking, could they have been submerged logs being moved by the currents? No unusual readings were made on the next two days, 
Convinced believers would no doubt say the creatures were hiding from disturbance. I can't help thinking that within the last 10 years, most visitors would have had a, an iPhone or similar and I would have expected more film footage if there was anything unusual in the lock. There's so much interesting information on Loch Ness on the internet that it's possible to disappear down a rabbit hole for some time. And maybe I will do another podcast on a Loch Ness story later. But if you're interested in this, I do urge you to, to Google and uh, look at the different sites devoted to Loch Ness because I find them very interesting. Anyhow, that's today's podcast, The Loch Ness Mystery. So I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music. And I'd like to thank you all for listening and say goodbye. <laughs>